It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. We are less than 24 hours away from what has been described as the most consequential election of our time. On the eve of the elections all across the country, we want to take an opportunity to focus on our local school board and state elections. During the first half hour of the show, we'll focus on one of the four Monroe County Community School Corporation, the MCCSC, board and trustee elections. And during the second half, we'll focus on the Indiana state elections. Joining us tonight to discuss the school board election and talk a little bit about MCCSC is Sue Wanzer, current school board member of District 2 and candidate for re-election. Sue has held that position since 2001, and she also serves as vice president of the Monroe County Community School Corporation Board of Trustees. Sue, welcome to Bring It On. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to do this with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, let's get right down to it. Um, we've had the pleasure of having you as our school board member since 2001. And uh, let us know a little bit about your time on the board and um, why you want to keep staying on the board and up for re-election again. Oh, th thank you so much for asking that question. Before I ever ran for the board, um, I was a volunteer at Fairview Elementary School. And that taught me a whole lot about um, what we don't have in many in some of our schools. Um, it, it showed me the disparity of, of our schools and the, 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 just the great needs and what our teachers are doing. So from that, I decided if I can help one school, maybe I can help all the schools. So that's when I decided to run for the school board. And basically, um, my time on the board has been spent emphasizing the need to serve the least of us. Um, I believe public education is the great equalizer in a democracy. And I also believe that through public education, um, I guess all things are possible. So I have sought for the last two decades um, to increase diversity, to increase understanding of differences, to make sure that every student is safe and has an equal opportunity in our schools. And sometimes, you know, Cornelius, that's, that's meant a fight of a few years. Um, sometimes it's been um, a difficult struggle. Sometimes there hasn't been the support for that. But um, it's kept me going, and I believe I've been able to make a number of different policy changes that really helps all of our kids and all of our families, and, and in the end, that benefits our schools. Indeed. Uh, speaking of diversity, I know that the commitment to diversity and uh, equity and inclusion, it's necessary to build one's individual awareness about community members not like themselves. Yes. You've been on the board for quite a while. What are some of the ways that the school board as a collective is educating themselves about issues that impact the minority communities 
And is there some sense of accountability with the board? Uh, well, that's a great that's a great question, especially about the accountability. Um, I guess the accountability, um, I, we really haven't built that in. And that's that's why I really appreciate that question. Um, that's something we need. And I guess that's something that that we ask our community um, to help us figure out. But over the years, um, especially with our school board, we have done um, some training just for the board um, with some outside consultants um, on implicit bias, on anti-racist training, um, on LGBTQ awareness. And I think it's been very um, instructive to the board. Even those of us who think, well, I know everything there is to know about diversity, or I've been through these things before. You know, it, it doesn't matter how many times you've been through it. You learn something new. You learn ideas from other people. Um, and I think what it does is it helps strengthen us as a board so that we are more understanding when we hear from teachers or administrators or principals or when we hear from students about the different things that are happening in school. Because the one thing about public education, the beauty of it is it's public. Um, sometimes the difficulty is it's public. And so we have all kinds of families and all kinds of children with all kinds of needs and they're all competing needs. So just like our general society, Cornelius with everyone at odds with each other, that happens in our schools too. So we have to be aware of all aspects of our kids. You know, that, that leads me to another point and we're gonna kind of tie the two ends together. One of the huge issues nationally is the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Uh, how society is handling it, schools are handling it. Uh, MCCSC made a decision, I believe it was in August, to go back to school. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk a little bit about the decision that went into that, uh, to go back to school? Are there yeah. any plans as the COVID epidemic is rising across the country now? Um, are there any contingency plans if it gets worse here in Monroe County? Um, yeah, that yeah this this has been this has been very stressful for for everyone, um, especially um, our folks who are in schools, um, our teachers, our custodians, our support staff, our administrators. We the we the um, our superintendent called together physicians. Um, and epidemiologists, mental health workers, public health workers to help review information and to help make recommendations. So the one thing I always say is I might not know a lot, but I do know what I don't know. <clears throat> and I don't know about public health. I, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a physician. So I listened to what these people said and understood that if we took the right precautions, to make our schools as safe as possible, that we would um, be in a good position to open schools. And my biggest concern throughout all of this has been the children who need to be in school because they're getting services, they're getting food, they're getting support that they won't get at home if they're not in school. I don't want those kids falling through the cracks. Um, we just had a, a wonderful presentation by Byron Turner at our school board meeting on Tuesday, who works for Child Protective Services, talking about the number of um, 
of the lack of reports, actually, the the number of abuse, child abuse reports, how it went down this summer and in the spring. And it's not because there was less abuse of children. It was because there weren't the people like teachers to report those potential incidents. So um, it's something that I felt really, really important that there were certain children that who needed to be in school. So that's why um, our superintendent and our administrators were able to work out a system where people could be in school if they chose to, or they could learn online at home. And boy, you know what? Our teachers don't get paid over the summer, but they were working over the summer to develop <clears throat> new skills and new tools for online learning. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And I think they've done an amazing job. At our school board meeting on Tuesday, we heard about all the advances that have been made, whether it's online learning or the in-class learning. Um, we had a report from our chief, our I guess she's the coordinator of nursing services, Renee Strikeleather, who talked about all the contact tracing and how many hours have gone into that um, when somebody reports being positive. So I believe, honestly, that's supposed to be posted on our website. So I hope people get to listen to this. I honestly believe that our schools are probably some of the safest places in our community, certainly much safer than going into any restaurant or any bar or any grocery store because things are clean constantly. Things are so carefully monitored. Um, so for people who choose to be in school, and I'm so happy we have that option, I think that's probably one of the safest places to be. Have we had many cases reported from children in the, uh, at MCCSC? We have. We've had a few. And honestly and truly, um, I, I don't remember the number. Um, it's relatively low and it's on the MCCSC website. Um, and it's a breakdown by what week it was reported and what school. Now, um, what we have determined from contact tracing and what our medical staff tells us is the kids who have who are testing positive did not contract COVID in school. It came from someplace else. Mostly it looks like it's family gatherings, um, people doing things probably quite innocently, maybe thinking that they're safe and so they get together with other people and then somebody gets the virus. Um, and But we find out at school because of all of the um, checks that families need to do before the kids come to school. So that chart can be found on the um, homepage of the website. And those children are then um, asked to quarantine for two weeks. And anyone that they came into contact with, with close contact, um, and our nursing staff can define all of that, um, they, are make, they are doing the contact tracing to, have, to let other people know that they may, may need to be tested. You know, so, you know, Cornelius, so that makes me think that's really one of the safest. I mean, the best things that we can do is to identify people who might be positive so that they can be tested and then they can be quarantined and hopefully stop as much spread as we can. Indeed. Let's go into another direction. Mm -hmm. uh, what are there any practices that MCCSC has in place to recruit and retain teachers of color? Being yes. a black man, that's a huge concern of mine. And is there a strategic plan to recruit faculty and staff of color? Um, yes, it should be a concern of yours. And you know what? I, I wish it was a concern of everyone's um, because, yeah, we need <laughs> for our um, black children, they need to see people who look like them. 
Um, they need to see teachers. They need to see that 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 a black kid can grow up to be a black teacher or administrator or principal. We have um, Cornelius done a number of things, including when Diane Hanks was here as our director of, um, I think at that time we call it director of diversity initiatives. Um, we Diane would travel to historically black colleges and universities. She went to some Southern states to do sweeps of colleges and to talk to um, or try to recruit people in, in the education field, people who are, who are teachers and try to get them to come to Indiana. What we learned from that was you can't try to recruit when people are seniors. So then we tried that again and doing the same thing, but trying um, to infiltrate, shall we say, those schools of education when, um, when students were freshmen or sophomores. So, um, so that way we could get them to think about Indiana, think about coming to Bloomington, um, trying to sell the community and the school corporation. Uh, we haven't been real successful necessarily. Um, and I'll be the first to acknowledge that and the first to say it's it's troubling. Um, I think it's very troubling to a number of people. Um, we have increased somewhat. We now have um, some additional black administrators, which you know, I, I'm delighted that Dr. Marquet Winston is our assistant superintendent. Um, not only is she our assistant superintendent, but she's front and center um, with a lot of presentations to the community and a lot of information. And, I, and she, no matter what color she, she was, she just has a wonderful impact in a wonderful way with people. So um, I'm so glad that she decided to take a position here. And we do have, um, we are increasing some of our teachers, but you know, it's, it's just, it's, um, it's difficult for my, fr especially my single black female friends, who tell me that it's difficult being um, maybe middle-aged and coming here. It's There's not a lot of social life here. Um, people would rather go to larger cities, but that doesn't mean we're gonna give up, Cornelius. And we keep reaching out to different people to try to help us with different ideas and trying to recruit. And I know um, our friend Beverly Calendra Anderson was trying to recruit for our police department. So we've also worked with, with her and with other partners to try to find ways um, to bring more people of color into our school corporation and to figure out if, if they're not coming, why? And what can we do to make that happen? Excellent. Um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, charter schools versus mm -hmm. public education. And would you, would you enlighten our listeners a little bit about one, <laughs> what charter schools are, the difference, and just the, the uh, the difference between the two and, and uh, the importance of public education. Oh, thanks for that opportunity. Um, you know, the way that charter schools originally began was they were part of a public school corporation and it would be a school um, almost, I don't want to say an experiment, but um, it would be a separate school, but part of the corporation and it would run differently. They would try different things. Um, they might try different teacher qualifications. Um, they would try different approaches, but it was meant to be a part of a school corporation where new ideas could be tried safely and then incorporated into the rest of the school corporation. Now, in the state of Indiana, when our legislature got a hold of it, they they found out, well, this is, you know, here's another way. This is my opinion, please. But um, 
I believe our state legislature, and I think a lot of people believe this too, they want to dismantle public education and they're doing everything they can to, to try to siphon money out, out of public education. So when charters came along, they made it very easy for charters um, to, uh, to, to be formed. And a charter school means that they get a charter from the state. They don't have a publicly elected school board. It's an individual, it's an individual school that is started by a group of people. Um, they are governed then by whatever kind of board they want to appoint for themselves. And over the years, in over the last two decades, actually, in Indiana, what has happened is more and more charters have popped up to create what I call specialty or niche schools, schools where um, people want to, so that people can take their children out of a public school and put them in a school where they get to have some more control over what's happening. But, but the real problem then with charters began um, as the, our legislature started awarding money to charter schools based on the number of students saying the money should follow the student. So the money's attached to the student. That then opened up the door to have money follow the student to private schools. And most of the private schools in Indiana are religious, of course. So that means our taxpayer money is being taken out of the public education system. And then it's going into charters and that opened the door for private schools. My concern is if we would take that money and put it all back together into one big school corporation, we would have more money so that we could have some at least a little bit more adequate funding as it is the state of Indiana um, just doesn't fund public education fully. And when they take money out of the budget that goes to charter and privates first, and then allocates the rest to public education, there just isn't enough money to do the kinds of things we need to do, especially, especially during the pandemic. Um, Cornelius, what I found out recently was that, um, we found this out Tuesday, I think, at our school board meeting. We In MCCSC, we have the resources and the staff so that we can do the contact tracing. We can report our COVID cases to the state. We can do follow-up testing with people. Too many school corporations in the state don't have the funds to do that. Why? Because, first of all, we're not adequately funded. Secondly, the state isn't helping us do that. So um, as a result, a whole lot of places in Indiana, the schools aren't reporting the data like we are. And that is so unfortunate. Um, first of all, that we don't have the adequate funding. Secondly, that the state isn't helping during this pandemic. And third, that our limited state funding is being divided um, into public schools, charter schools, and then vouchers for private schools. Um, and it just, to me, it's it's just unthinkable because public education to me has always been the great equalizer um, where we all we all learn together and we all learn to live together. And I see private schools and charter schools, and this is again is my opinion, and I'm I I, I let any parent choose whatever they want, but I see it as a way to segregate children. And certainly people can do that if they want to. That is their choice, but I don't think the state should be funding it. You know, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and I can recall conversations with my, my parents had and they were willing to spend that extra money. They didn't expect the taxpayers to, to send me to a exactly. private school. Uh, and, and one of the things in listening to you, that that's, it sounds like more of an economic and racial disparity are happening because of some of this. And I could be wrong, but... 
how 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 can our, our legislature how can they even justify taking tax dollars and giving it to private institutions? Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's a that's a really good question, and I'll tell you why. Because there's a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of private money. Pardon? Who should we hold accountable as as these elections oh. are coming up for those decisions? The legislature. That's why, you know, to affect education, it's not just the school board. It really is the legislature, too, and our governor, um, because those are the people making the decision. And, and like a lot of different politicians, they're being influenced by the private money that's out there, the no donations that they're getting from private organizations that run charters. And, and private schools and the money, there's a lot of money for them to be made to, to, to be made from from these enterprises. And that's why this is happening. And um, if we got all that private money um, for the private operation out of there, um, we would it would be so much better. But yeah, legislators um, are affected. There's a group called ALEC, um, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and they write um, template bills very conservative bills, and they've done this in um, Indiana and Florida are the, the two places they're, they're really known for. And they um, introduce those to different legislators who then take this and use this as a model to develop legislation to limit the funding to public education. Because like I said, again, there's a lot of money to be made out there in the world of um, private operation of charter schools. And that's not all charter schools but private operation of charter schools and um, private schools. All righty. For our listening audience, we are speaking with Sue Wanzer, school board member from District 2 and a candidate for re-election. On that note, Sue, why don't we talk a little bit about the campaign? How's it going? Um, what pitfalls have you, been, uh, have, you, have you had? What questions have the community really been giving you about what's going on in our school district? You know, great question. And what a weird time to be running a campaign. Um, you know, the what I usually like about campaigning, whether it's for me or if I'm on somebody else's campaign, I love to go out and meet people and to go to house parties and answer questions and talk to people. And we're not doing that right now. Um, so it's 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 been very different. Um, I've had to rely on much more on social media on um, phone calling, on radio shows like this one. So it's, it's, it's really been, it's been much more difficult. And certainly, certainly some of the questions do have to do with um, teacher autonomy, teacher control, especially during the time of this pandemic. The other thing that has come up many times, well, usually it's funding um, and what can we do to ensure that we get the funding. And of course, we have such a great community that values education and has helped pass two referenda. And the other question that's, so, so that's one of the questions coming up is funding. And the other thing is about a new superintendent. Um, superintendent Judy DeMuth is retiring next summer. So we're in the process of searching for a new superintendent. Um, one, of the, the, one of the reasons I'm running again is because I wasn't going to initially, but then with everything going on, I wanted to provide some stability for the board. The board right now, uh, the a majority of the people have um, less than one term of experience. So that's less than four years. 
And so I thought if I could stay on for one more term, um, I could help through a new referendum. I could help with a new superintendent and that transition and and, um, hopefully keep some experience and stability into the school board. Are there any candidates and is there a a committee that's out there for the new superintendent? And if so, or uh, is there community uh, involvement? Um, So you're asking, is there a committee to help with the selection? Is that correct? Did I? Okay. Um, We hired um, BWP and Associates. It's a national search firm for superintendents. Um, One of the principals of that organization is Dr. Ron Barnes, who is right here in Bloomington. Um, He sees this as part of his community service because he lives here. So he wants the best school corporation possible. So um, he, uh, we've used him before and because they have a national reach, it's, it's very helpful to us. And through um, Dr. Barnes's company, we did a community audit where we had a number of different focus groups um, to search out from our community and individuals in those groups uh, what what people thought we needed in a superintendent? What were our strengths and what did we need to improve on? Um, and what should be, we be looking for in a new superintendent? And those groups um, went very well. There's um, a list of qualifications now that we're looking for in a new superintendent. And that's posted on the MCCSC website under superintendent search. And certainly those the, all the people who participated in that um, it was a, it really was a broad-based committee. It was parents, it was community members, it was business people, it was students, um, it was family members, it was teachers, administrators. So I, I think we had a really good turnout and we have some really, really high expectations for a new superintendent. Excellent. In our last few minutes, if in a perfect world, with Sue Wanzer as head of the school board, what would <laughs> what would your wish list be for the MCCSC? Oh, in a perfect world, I'll tell you, it would be um, that we have adequate funding. I'm not talking about extra funding, um, glamorous buildings or anything. I'm talking about adequate funding so that we could raise the the pay of teachers. Um, we would have um, schools that schools that weren't quite as segregated as well, elementary schools that weren't quite as segregated as they were now. I would change the entire housing makeup of Monroe County. I would change the UDO for Bloomington, which the city council is looking at now. Um, I would try to integrate housing more. Um, We would have money for more transportation, which if we had more transportation, we could certainly change our school populations um, a whole lot more. And that's something we're looking at with a new superintendent too, is somebody who can help us diversify our schools, or at least balance out our schools and diversify our um, our teaching staff. So those are some of the, the in the perfect world. Oh, I would build one more school too. I think we could use one more building to help, um, to help us balance everything out. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. I'd like that question. <laughs> well, I really want to thank you. Uh, I appreciate our conversation. Uh, good luck in the election. Thank and, you. Uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you once the uh, 
once we have uh, dealt with this COVID virus and we can get back to normal. Oh, that would be wonderful. I appreciate that. And thank you for giving me this opportunity on your radio show. You're quite welcome. We want to thank Sue Wanzer, current school board member of District 2 Monroe County Community Schools Corporation and candidate for re-election for joining us to discuss the election and walk a, talk a little bit about MCCSC. As promised, for the remaining 30 minutes, we'll turn our focus to the Indiana state elections. As promised, for the remaining 30 minutes, we'll turn our focus to Indiana state elections. And joining us to provide an update and help us to understand the state of Indiana's elections on election eve is Dana Black, Indiana Democratic Party Deputy Chair of Engagement. Hey, how's it going? All right, Dana, you didn't you didn't give me a chance to say welcome to bring it on. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe no, that's because you know you're always welcome, right? I, I feel like I'm at home. I, don't, I didn't know I needed a welcome when I came home. Okay, got it. Yeah, you got a key too. So, to kick this off, I'm going to ask you if you would give us a quick and simple overview uh, of Indiana state elections. Okay. So, unfortunately, um, uh, the Republican Party in our state uh, didn't want to agree to no excuse absentee balloting. And so unfortunately, uh, those that, did, that didn't have an excuse on, on why they wouldn't be able to show up for the election on Tuesday um, have had to go out and risk their lives in the middle of this pandemic to cast their vote. And what we've seen is an amazing turnout. Uh, we've seen uh, the numbers uh, way up from 2016. Um, and, and, and when we know that when the turnout is high, um, it kind of has a, a blue tilt to it. Um, we know the numbers up are in Lake County, we know the numbers are up in Marion County, Allen County, and in Monroe County. Um, early voting started uh, the first week of October, and it has been going strong. The lines, unfortunately, because of, you know, voter suppression, and let's just call it that, those lines are long, um, but uh, people are willing to um, stand there and do their civic duty to make sure that their voices are heard, and that is exciting um, more than anything. Um, people are turning out. They're ready for a change. And we believe our party is offering a change all the way up and down the ballot. We believe from the, the highest office to school board, we're off, you know, well, school board is nonpartisan, but uh, we believe we have candidates um, up and down the board that are uh, ready to serve and move Indiana in a different direction. So that judge's ruling back in September, was that overturned about uh, counting late ballots? So uh, it was overturned. And so um, your ballot has, to, if you're mailing in ballots, your ballot has to be in um, by election day, by I believe end noon. of election day. Yeah, noon, noon, noon election day. Yeah. Um, so if you have not mailed your ballot in, don't. don't. <laughs> you need to take it to a polling place and drop at, drop your ballot off. Don't, mailing it in is too late. Yeah, the, the news organizations have been sounding the alarm about that for like the last four or five days. Don't use the mail system. And it, and, if, and I hope everybody uh, signed the envelopes like they were supposed to. We're yeah. seeing no, too many numbers. The numbers are way high on uh, uh, people ballots that may be rejected um, because of signature. Now, 
there is a there's been a thing there's a bill in place there was a, a ordinance in place a stay in place I'm not, and I want to make sure that I say it correctly where instead of just discounting ballots they're supposed to reach out to the uh, voter to verify signatures and things like that um, but just don't even put it in their hands just make sure you do what you're supposed to do and sign those ballots and make sure you put your initials on them like you're supposed to I, I got something you might be able to help me out with. I was having a conversation on Facebook with a cousin who does not plan to vote. That conversation went from bad to badder, I mean, to worse. And this was over several days to the point now where not only are we no longer Facebook friends, I don't even know if we're still cousins. Wow. But I, I mean, it really got heated. And if, if you can imagine a heated conversation in, in text or print or whatever, but I wanted to ask at this point in the game, now you and I both know the importance of voting, but yes, what do. would you, how would you communicate to someone who's still saying that? Well, I, I, I deduce it down to the lowest common denominator. Somebody is going to win this election. Somebody, one person is going to win on either side, no matter where they are on the ballot. Somebody's going to win. Don't you want to have a say in that? So you not voting is not going to not create a winner. There's going to be a winner, but you should have a voice in how and who that is. And relinquishing and disenfranchising yourself um, for the sake of what? Pride? I, I don't know. I mean, this is one of the arguments that I've often heard is, you know, um, a lot of people are saying, you know, they want to bring the racist elements into the conversation. Um, and it's it's funny when I hear my white brothers and sisters talk about, you know, who's more racist between, uh, you know, between Trump and, and Biden and, and all of that. But I try to remind black folk every time, ever since we've had the opportunity to vote, we've had to choose between the racist and the bigot. So it's, that's nothing new for us. So now we have to look at, OK, what are the policies that people are introducing that are going to have an impact on our lives and how, who are they surrounding themselves with? If you look at the Trump organization, it's all a bunch of older white fellows uh, that have a, a, a significant amount of money. Whereas the Biden campaign, his VP pick speaks to how he's going to diversify um, his cabinet, diversify the people around him. And so he may not have all the answers himself, Joe Biden, but he's going to surround himself with people with different lived experiences that can speak to our needs. And that is one of the things that I think is probably more important. Who's at the table? Who's in the room? Who's helping to, to craft those decisions? Uh, the the family member that I was speaking with uh, kind of is stuck on, so I, I won't say that it's not legitimate, but I think there's a different approach to dealing with it, but he feels disenfranchised by Democrats and, and, and Republicans. So he dismisses both of them. Well, you don't have to be associated with a party there. There, listen, there are other candidates on the ballot. It just so happens that we are in a two party system. And I, I feel it's interesting that people talk about what the Democrats have not done. Um, but when you ask them, what have the Republicans done? What what have Republicans done to help our community when you talk about Democrats have not done? And I, I would disagree with that wholeheartedly. And, and I would talk about the policies that we introduce as Democrats versus the policies they introduce. I mean, and especially speaking to, to 
to our African-American community, it's always been the more progressive side of our, of our electoral system that got us the civil rights legislation, that got us the voting rights legislation. It was the more progressive thinkers, it's the more progressive judges that said it was okay for, for gay folk to get married. It's that other stuff over there, if you ain't a millionaire or a billionaire, yeah, might as well forget about it. If you don't, I mean, even if you are, are not in a position to leave an area because the environment is toxic, those are the things that you should vote think about. It, I, I wish that sometimes I wish people would stop thinking it's just, it's about the human. The human is just one element of it. It's all the humans together and what policies they are that they are introducing that are going to uh, uh, appeal to us that are going to impact us and make our lives better. Okay, can I quote you verbatim when I talk to my cousin again? Absolutely. Tell him to holler at me. I'm easy to find. <laughs> okay. Um, you mentioned something about judges, and, and that's another interesting topic. But before we go there, I want to jump to uh, Indiana state elections, starting at the top of the ticket to some of the uh, significant down-ballot races. But the, the last poll that I saw, Holcomb was polling at 47%. Uh, and if it's changed, then it's not by much. Right. Myers at 29 and the Libertarian at 15. And about 10% undecided. Now, d- does the Libertarian end up being a spoiler in this race? Um, he can. He could be for Republicans. Um, yeah. he's, he's siphoning off Republican votes. He's not impacting uh, the Democrat votes at all. Okay. I mean, it's, this guy is talking about, you know, no one should have to wear a mask if they if they don't want to when we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, he, this, in my opinion, uh, the Libertarian can, candidate Rainwater would rather just shut the entire government down and let everybody fend for themselves. Go get your musket, go get your your, your horse-drawn wagon, and and go out on the plains and and make it on your own. And that's not how it works. This, we're all in this thing together. Me personally, I want somebody to come and shovel the roads when I drive on it. I want somebody to come pick up my trash. So there, his to me, he's he's a little bit more extreme than Holcomb. I think Holcomb is uh, I, personally. I think that he is is being led by other people. He's not making decisions. He's supposed to be the governor. In fact, you know the story is is that when uh, Mike Pence and his wife came to vote, they actually used the governor's mansion's address as their address. I mean, so, I mean, if we want to move Indiana in the right direction, we have got to look at the policies. Um, I, I wish that um, hope, uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Myers' numbers were, were higher. Um, this is Indiana, but we have the capability of turning Indiana blue. It's yeah. all about the turnout. We've done it before. You know, when we elected Barack Hussein Obama in 2008, um, that Lake County showed up, Marion County showed up. And, you know, if you think about it, cows, pigs and horses don't vote. Grass and hay and soybeans don't vote. Corn does not vote. So I know, trust me, I understand the importance of making sure that we have policies that impact our rural communities. But we definitely need to get the turnout in our more densely populated areas. And I think um, I think we have a shot. I mean, it's a long shot, but I think we have a shot. Okay, and I'm I'm really anxious to hear more about the uh, house race in Indiana. There's, so there are a lot of house races that are up. Um, so we already know that the uh, the in the General Assembly, in the House of Representatives, and in the Senate, they have a supermajority. Um, the Indiana House, if they flip one seat, they can end that supermajority. Now they wouldn't have the obviously the majority in the House, but but right now the Republicans can pass bills out of the House without Democrats even showing up to work, and that's unacceptable. That means 
over 45% to 50% of our, of our state is not being heard and they're not being properly represented. So we, we flipping one seat will make a big difference, but there are some key races I think we ought to look at. Um, so some of the key races are in that um, the donut counties, uh, the Northern donut counties of Indianapolis, um, in the Boone County and Hamilton County area. There are four women that are running as Democrats against incumbents and one vac vacated seat. Uh, first, I want to talk about uh, Naomi Bechtold, who is running in, uh, uh, I knew I was going to do that. Let me pull these up real quick. Um, she's running uh, in the Boone County area. She's polling very, very well out there. She's uh, She's been working her tail off. She had a personal tragedy. Um, her son passed away, but she's still out there campaigning and, and putting in the work. That's a seat that can flip. That area also has Senator J.D. Ford in it. So let, that just kind of gives you an indication of, of okay, that Senate seat um, in 2018 went blue. Hmm. And then you look at um, Amy Rivera Cole, who was running against uh, Todd Houston. Todd Houston, as you know, has been appointed uh, the next Speaker of the House. Well, he's in a dogfight right now. Uh, I do believe that uh, Amy Rivera Cole could flip that seat, and that person, and Todd Houston, thought he was going to be uh, the the House, the Speaker of the House, might not even get reelected. Uh, another seat, Ashley Klein. She's running against Tor. Uh, that seat is up for grabs. Tor is out campaigning, making phone calls, raising money. Something he hasn't done and had to do in a very long time. And the final area, the final seat is the east side of that Hamilton County. Uh, Brian Bosma stepped down. District 88 is, is, uh, is an open seat. And Pam Deckard has been out there working hard, raising money. She's running in that district and she has a chance to flip those seats. So there's four seats right there in the house that can be flipped. There are two seats that we do have some concern about, um, and that is Chris Chung um, and, and uh, Lisa Beck, both um, in the northern part of the state. Uh, they won in 2018 with narrow margins. Uh, I believe Chris Chung won with less than 100 votes. Um, so those are really tough races that we're trying to hang on to, but I believe that we'll be at an, a net gain um, around the state. There are some really, really good competitive races um, that are up and I believe that, that they can be flipped. So you've been working your way uh, down to our area. What What's the situation? I know Andy Ruff has a, a really uh, difficult race on his hands because he's just going against, going up against a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah. But yeah. uh, is, is there anything you can say about that race? You know, that's a, that is a tough race. And um, the, you know, uh, Tennessee Trey, and I call him that because he's a carpetbagger. Um, he's raised, yeah. he's, got, he's got a crazy amount of money. And I think yeah. Andy is, it hasn't, uh, raised, doesn't, hasn't raised nearly the amount of money uh, that Trey has. Um, that district is so weird. I don't even understand how it goes from Johnson County all the way down to Clark County. It, um, gerrymandering is one of those things that we're going to be looking at, you know, in 2021, we redraw these lines. Um, he's in a tough, he's in a tough, tough race. Um, it's hard for him to compete without the same amount of money, but he's, you know, he's doing his yeoman's work um, and he's getting out there and doing the best he can to compete. Uh, it's just, that's just a tough race. That's the same thing with Janine Lake. Um, yeah. Janine Lake in the sixth district, she's running against Greg Pence. And, you know, she's working her tail off, but that is, it's, it goes from Muncie down to the Ohio River as well. Um, so some of the some of the way these districts are drawn, um, it makes them really hard to compete. But I don't because I don't understand what 
you know, what somebody in Muncie has in line with somebody down in Switzerland County or what somebody in Bloomington has in line with someone down uh, in, in uh, Green County, but that might be District 8. Uh, District 8 has Naomi, uh, or, I'm sorry, Thomasina Marcelli. Yeah. Uh, she's running a heck of a race down there. She's raising money. She's been communicating with people. Um, that one, I, I got some hopes. I, that could be the sleeper. That could be the surprise. That could be the the flip that we didn't see um, because of the way she's working. Um, uh, no one's no one's paying attention to it. Um, District 2 uh, with with uh, Pat Hackett up in the South Bend area. She's taking on Walorski. Uh, that is a hotly contested race. She's This is her second goal um, at that seat. So she has name recognition. Um, she's been putting in the work. But the one seat, uh, the, 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 the congressional seat that is definitely flippable um, is District 5 with uh, Christina Hale. Um, uh, Susan Brooks stepped aside, said she wasn't running again. It became an open seat. Um, Christina Hale, as we know, was a House rep. She ran for lieutenant governor in 16 with John Gregg. And now she is, you know, the nation, the DNC, the DCCC, everybody has focused in on five and flipping five. Uh, and, and her numbers are looking real, real good. She has uh, every opportunity. So we could definitely be sending, instead of just regular two out of Lake and, and Marion County, we yeah. could actually be sending five. Um, we could flip some seats. We could flip some seats. So Amy Rivera Cole is, is uh, given the... Uh the new selected uh, uh, potential house speaker, all kinds of grief up there. What do you okay. think her her appeal is? Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to be honest. I think that the whole area is starting to get a little purple, a little bit blue. Um, her appeal is that she is a teacher. She she's a, she's been in. The, she's an attorney. I'm sorry. She's an attorney. She's been in the name in the in the community a long time. Her message is strong about moving Indiana forward and doing things differently and not continuing on the same path. Um, Todd Houston has some ethics issues he's dealing with. Um, turns out he's a lobbyist in New York. He's a registered lobbyist in New York. Um, so he has some 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 concerns and some issues. Um, but my my biggest thing is I think people understand that every county is not like Hamilton County. Hamilton County is you know, our wealthiest county per capita. And Todd Houston wants to run the other 91 counties like Hamilton County. And that's just not possible when people have a different set of needs. And, you know, Todd doesn't want to um, let go of any of that that reserve or our uh, 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 reserve money or any of the money that we have set aside for rainy day to help out Hoosiers. Um, and so that's resonating with people. And Amy Revere Cole, and she's partnered, they partnered with um, all the other ladies in that area, and they're running like a joint campaign trying to flip you know Boone County, Hamilton County, the southern part of that that county, um, because they recognize the importance of helping teachers and 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 making sure people have living wages. So those are the messages the Democrats are talking about. Todd Houston just wants to keep doing what he's been doing, which is you know stacking stacking chips for wealthy people and cutting taxes for wealthy mm -hmm. people and that's it. What about our friend down in uh, District 12? Uh, District 12, that would be my uh, Evansville. Evansville is that twelve? That's what town DePauli is running. No, she's yeah, she's in seventy eight. Seventy okay, my yeah, mistake. yeah, she's seventy eight. So she's um she's running against the tough incumbent. Um, Tonda is first of all, I don't think people realize how valuable Tonda has been to our party for such a long time. She has been 
uh, one of the voices at the table advocating for the African-American community. Mm -hmm. um, she's in a very tough race. Um, it, 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 that the way, again, the way those districts are drawn, you know, all she can do is compete and, and, and share our message. I I'm hoping for the best for her. Those, those, those polls aren't looking up. Those numbers aren't looking all that great for her, but I believe that she's putting in all the work that she can. So at this stage of the game, um, where we're less than 24 hours away, what tips would you give for voters at the, at the 11th hour? Well, if you haven't already voted, just go vote. Don't be heard. Go stand in line, take a snack, take a chair, take, you know, put on a mask, you know, um, and, and just remember that every vote counts. If people don't remember, um, last year in Columbus, uh, it, the Columbus City Council went blue for the first time. Now, Columbus is the home of the Pences, right? And they flipped it blue by one vote. So the district one was flipped by one vote and, and now they have an African-American uh, on the council. So uh, everybody's voice matters. Don't listen to these people tell you that your, vo your vote doesn't count. That's how you get things started. Like we were in the streets and we were you know, talking about Black Lives Matter and making sure that, that, that there's some real criminal justice reform. Well, now that you've done the, the, the protest politics, you have to do the electoral politics so that you get people in place to, to change the laws, right? You're, you're protesting that we need to change these laws or have stiffer laws or, or hold people accountable, but you gotta elect the people who are in charge to write those things to make them accountable. So you gotta turn the protest politics into electoral politics and your voices have got to be heard. So with all this talk about a blue wave and, and Democrats are really not uh, sounding, uh, you know, sounding off about a possible blue wave, understandably so, because we got surprised uh, four years ago, but you still can't ignore it. You know, the possibilities are there. So is there a possibility that any of that blue wave could spill over into Indiana? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We've seen what it looks like uh, when Indiana turns blue. It wasn't a century ago. It, it was 12 years right. ago, into, into 2008. Um, we, we can do it if we turn out. You know, um, Dr. Myers and Linda Lawson are running a great campaign. They've been crisscrossing the state, trying to, trying to be the go next governor. Unfortunately, there are still people who are going to vote for Trump. There just there just are. Um, and what I what I think might actually happen is there's probably going to be a lot of split ticket votes. Um, they're going to you know those there's going to be people who despise Trump but will vote for Holcomb. Um, and so we could definitely turn Indiana blue like we did in 2008 and still end up with a Republican governor. Um, so I, I think you can, and, and it's really all about turnout. I mean, if you there are more. There are more of us than there are of them. We just have to turn out. We just have to go to the polls. Well, uh, do you think Indiana will certify a winner of the presidential election within 24 hours? That part I don't know. I'm. A, I'm. Uh, I, it depends. I mean, the state house has set it up so that the largest county in the state um, receives all of its absentee ballots in one location, and they all have to be counted at one location, whereas other counties can have those absentee ballots. Uh, counted in different locations. It all depends. Um, it really does come down to, I think, Marion and Lake County, uh, or, or maybe even Allen County, um, counting those absentee ballots. Uh, that's that's going to be the key before they certify. And I'm actually okay if they don't certify right away. I would rather every vote be counted. Right. 
Absolutely. And I'd rather hear the truth. Hello. And we can't get discouraged. I mean, that's the scary part, right? You know, you got a you got a president saying he's going to he's already got his legal team together to 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 challenge the results. And nothing has even been turned. You, you don't know anything. All you got are exit polls. And those people aren't t- always tell you the truth. No one's ever asked me an exit poll. So I don't even know who they're asking, <laughs> you know. So I, I, I just think, you know, we need to listen. The diehards are the diehards. They're, they're about 35 to 38 percent. They're going to vote for Trump no matter what. And right. then you have our diehards on the left. We're voting blue no matter what. There's that sliver in the middle um, that we have to get to turn out to our side. And I believe that those voters would be the swing voters. I know they're talking about, you know, the black vote. Well, I'm sorry. Men are Black men are voting for Democrats 88% of the time and black women are 92% of the time. Black vote is good. The Latino vote is suspect because it is so diverse. You know, yes, Cuban Americans may lean more Republican and Mexican Americans may lean more Democrat. So the Hispanic vote, the fact, the fact that we try to lump it all together, it's not really gonna work either. But what, what really, I'm sorry, it really comes down to working class white men. How are they going to vote? How are working class white men going to vote? Are they going to vote for the, the, the team that continues to, you know, uh, bust up unions and make it more difficult to collect the bargain and bring your wages up? Are they going to continue to vote for um, the, 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 the team that doesn't want to educate their kids? that finds new ways and, and, and exciting ways to, to defund public education, especially in rural Indiana, where you don't have a choice, school choice, but what choice do you have <laughs> when you're in rural America? Well, we know um, how the majority of them are going to vote. I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, 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 I mean, I, I would like to think that there's some working class white men who um, are not drinking the Kool-Aid. That's... I, I, I like to think that I, I know a few of them. So <laughs> there's some, of course, yeah. but it's, it's, but it's, it's I think the, the majority of them are going to do what they did the last time. That's just just my thoughts. Possibly, and and white women did the same thing. But I think yeah. I think white women are are you know with Roe v. Wade being um, uh, on the the chopping block now with the the Barrett confirmation. I think the children's separation at the border. Um, is is causing some some heartburn for for mothers and women. Um, so I I believe women might you know that might be a 50-50 split. Um, but again, it's you know the minority communities are pretty much. I mean, even the Asian American community is ninety percent Democrat. People don't want to talk about that. Uh, so it really is about working uh, white working class folks. And and Joe Biden seems to appeal to them. He seems to. Um, you know, the, the guy from Scranton appeals to uh, working class white men. Uh, where did the time go? We got about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about a reference you made to judges uh, a mm-hmm. few minutes ago. Uh, was there something else you wanted to say about that? Uh, well, I just I, I think it's just important that we understand, you know, uh, everything. Like, I know that the Supreme Court justice appointment was disturbing. Um, I didn't put a lot of energy in it because I knew it was going to happen. Right, what what right. she qualified uh, does she have the experience? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you look at her resume, she, she's not. Absolutely not. Right. But there's a way for the Constitution has been set up so that we can we can correct these wrongs. Um, we can expand the court. I know. I know a lot of people are like, no, we shouldn't do this. It's a bridge too far. No, 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 no. 
I don't see how you don't pack the courts. You got to pack them. I think you have to pack them. And I like the fact that the Biden campaign has been like, I'm not focusing in on that right right now. I want to win first. You guys can focus in on that. You guys are doing, have the hypocritical behavior. You're the ones that said, no, we can't appoint a Supreme Court just in election year, but you turned around and did it anyway. So I think it's, I think we ought to pack the court and, 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 and I wouldn't care if they went three, four, five, I wouldn't care. The population in our nation has increased. We're over 365 million residents. Nine justices, we can expand that. Um, and I and I hope that we flip the Senate. I hope, oh my goodness, I, I want to see some, some Senate seats flipped. I, uh, I don't know if Amy McGrath down in Kentucky is going to be able to do it. Um, she's working hard. She raised a lot of money. Um, it's been kind of up and down with her, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been up and down. Jamie Harris is taking on Lindsey Graham and taking him to the woodshed, baby. I mean, it's it's. I it's love a it. Thing I love see. it. So there's a lot of work that still has to be done. But I, what I would uh, remind everyone is that all, all of this is a process. You know, voting for Biden is not going to fix everything today. You know, voting for Dr. Myers, him winning, is not going to fix everything right away. We have to remember that there are things in place and it takes it takes some compromise. It takes some negotiations. But, but when you have the right people in the room, things can get done. And that's the important part, having the right people in the room. Well, Dana, we are actually out of time and over time, but I still want to give you a chance to throw some last words in there. You always have some good ones for us. Uh, you know what? This is the most exciting time of the year. This is my favorite time of the year when we as citizens really get to have input in our government. You may not want to run for office. You may not want to work on a campaign, but casting your vote is how you get to participate in this citizen government. So don't don't waste it. Uh, use it with all your gusto. Okay. And on that note, we want to thank Dana Black, Indiana Democratic Party Deputy Chair of Engagement, for coming on to provide an update on Indiana state elections and all of her other wisdom that she shares with us. If you have not done so, we strongly encourage you to vote, vote, vote. And did I forget to mention, please go out and vote. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, we would like to hear it. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. The address is bring it on at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.